As mentioned earlier, the text of this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 2, which we have already read together, so we won't do that again. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the last few years there have been a number of popular artists who have released songs by the name Holy. Performers like Justin Bieber and Florida Georgia Line have used the term Holy as the theme of their songs about love for women. These songs are explicit, but they're also catchy, popular, and run through the the ears and minds of many people today. But But when we, as God's people, hear the word holy, we should stop in our tracks and think. As his people, we, we know of God's holiness. His perfect goodness and righteousness cannot bear with the presence of evil. Holiness and sin are incompatible. God's holy wrath justly pours out on things that are not holy. Unless God makes something holy, it cannot be. Explicit songs that compare human love and sex to the concept of holiness clash with what we know of God's holiness. Our culture, and even our contemporary Christian culture, has has twisted or, or softened the concept of holiness. But in our text this morning, the, the Philistines and the people of Beth Shemesh and Kiriath Jerem, they're confronted by God's holiness. And we learn that there are consequences for for softening, for forgetting, or not properly responding to God's holiness and majesty. But by His grace, our holy God also teaches us the proper response in His Word and provides a way for unholy sinners yet to stand before Him. That brings us to our theme this morning. In returning the ark to His people... The Lord displays his majesty and holiness. He does so in order to teach us, first, how to escape his holy wrath, second, how to respond to his holy ways, and third, how to stand before his holy presence. First, God teaches us how to escape his holy wrath. In verse 1 of our text, we read, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Well, first, what is exactly the ark of the Lord? In Exodus 25, the Lord gives instructions that explain the design of the ark. It was a gold-covered chest made of wood, about four feet by by two feet by two feet. On the bottom were, were four rings, two on each side. And then poles were placed into these rings so that the ark could be carried. On top of the ark was the mercy seat, and on the two ends of the mercy seat were two cherubim, with their wings spread over the mercy seat. The ark of the Lord symbolized the Lord's throne on earth, the holy presence of the Lord among his people. But question number two, how did the ark of the Lord come to the Philistines? In chapter 4, the Israelites had brought the ark into battle against the Philistines as if it had a a magical power 
as if the presence of God was bound to the ark. If they brought the ark into battle, they thought, surely God would have to give them the victory. But in response to this terrible mistake, the Lord allows the Philistines to defeat Israel and to capture the ark. Next, the Philistines place the ark of the Lord in the temple of their god, Dagon. If they had defeated Israel, surely Dagon must be more powerful than the Lord. But two mornings in a row, the Philistines wake up to find the idol of Dagon fallen on the ground before the ark. On the second day, the idol's head and hands were cut off and lying on the threshold. So the Lord displays his complete majesty and his power over the Philistine idol. As a symbol of the Lord's presence, the ark also pictured God's holiness. As we've seen, the Lord's holiness demands that those who stand before him are also holy. For this reason, he punishes the unholy Philistines by afflicting their land with tumors and with mice that ravaged the land. These tumors were a plague and seemed to have been visible lumps or growths that covered the entire body. This was terrifying. The Philistines sent the ark from one city to the next, trying to escape God's holy wrath. They asked their priests and diviners in verse 2, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And we might be surprised by the advice of the priests and diviners. By all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. As part of this guilt offering, the priests and diviners also advise that the Philistines give glory to the God of Israel. What a shift has taken place in their minds. They've gone from thinking that that Dagon had defeated the Lord to giving glory to God. Let's take a little closer look at the guilt offering. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. We might first think that these are appropriate. They certainly seem to acknowledge God's power in afflicting the entire Philistine land. But there's also a problem here. Because the Lord had revealed to his people that mice were unclean to them. And tumors sound similar to the Lord's instruction about leprosy, which was also unclean. So the Philistines sought to give a guilt offering to the Lord, but they did not know his ways. What was a guilt offering supposed to be? In Leviticus 4 and 5, the Lord teaches about both sin offerings and guilt offerings. And both of these have aspects that would apply to the sin that the Philistines committed. In the case of sin committed by the whole congregation, the elders were to offer a bull, laying their hands on its head to symbolize its substitution in their place for their sin. In the case of sin committed by one person against the holy things of the Lord, 
he was to offer a ram without blemish and also make restitution or material payment. We should note here that the Philistines did try to restore what they had done wrong with the golden mice and tumors, but they did not offer an animal as a sacrifice of substitution for their sin. The priests and diviners go on to propose a test. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two new milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. If the cows draw the cart to the land of the ark, to Beth Shemesh, say the Philistines, they'll know that it was God who had afflicted them. If the cows go anywhere else, then the affliction must have just been coincidence. And this is quite a test. These are two cows who have never been yoked, never trained to do so. Who knows how they'll respond when they're suddenly attached to each other and, and to the cart. And these are milk cows, rudely separated from their calves. So they're sure to be in a state of panic. Their driving instinct would be to move straight back to their calves, to their stalls. Why would they move toward Beth Shemesh, a town just inside the border of Israel, a place they'd never been before? Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. If the broken idol of Dagon face down before the Lord wasn't enough, if the plagues on the entire land of the Philistines wasn't enough, now the Lord clearly, unmistakably proves his absolute sovereign power and majesty to the Philistines. This was no coincidence. And we might be inclined to feel a little bit sorry for the Philistines. They're trying. They just didn't know any better. If they serve God in their own way, surely God will accept that. Brothers and sisters, the, the Philistines experienced the wrath of God and they were desperate to escape it. They gave an offering for their sin and they gave glory to the God of Israel. But they showed no sign of true repentance. They did not properly confess their sin, and they did not make blood sacrifice as substitution. When faced with God's holiness, they rejected the Lord in fear, seeking to send the ark away. And in Luke 8, we read of Jesus casting out an unclean spirit from a wild man in the country of the Gerasenes. When the people there saw what had happened, they were afraid. They asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. The Philistines and the Gerasenes, they show a human's natural response to God's power. Escape, run, put distance between yourself and him. Does this sound a little familiar? We might live in repentance each day, but perhaps over time, one particular sin creeps into our life and drives a wedge between us and the Lord. We become afraid to confess our sin before our holy God so we might drift away from 
personal prayer and scripture reading or avoid the worship services. Congregation, God's love for his people is constant. Even when we were dead in sin, Christ died for us. Our God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. If we find ourselves stuck in sin, we must draw near to God in humility, in confession, in prayer for strength. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4. For their part, the Philistines, they drew far from God. And so he drew far from them. It seems that the Lord does bring an end to the plague in the land. But the Philistines have not solved the problem of a holy God. God may have lifted his temporary judgment, but not his eternal judgment. The Philistines, like all humans, apart from God's intervention, they have no hope of standing before God's holiness. Even though they had not received God's law, they have no excuse for their sin. But our holy God is, is also gracious, and he does intervene. To this end, he had chosen Israel as his people and given to them the law. They had turned from it and stand guilty, with even less of an excuse than the Philistines. But the Lord does not abandon them. At the end of verse 12, the ark of the Lord is again in Israelite territory. The Lord had brought this about without any initiative or cooperation on the part of his people. They had literally not lifted a finger to help. The Lord had chosen Israel out of all the nations to be his people. And despite their sin, he returns a symbol of his presence, the symbol of his throne to his people. This is grace alone. And that brings us to our second point, how to respond to his holy ways. The Philistines were desperate to escape God's wrath, to distance themselves from his holiness. And now that the Lord has returned the ark to Israel, a similar question faces his people. How will they respond to God's holy presence as symbolized in the ark? This question surely comes unexpectedly. What a strange sight met the eyes of the people of Beth Shemesh. They're in the fields reaping the wheat harvest. Someone looks up and alerts everyone else. Look, into the valley comes a, a cart drawn by two cows moving towards the town. If anyone looked a little further in the distance, they'd see the Philistine lords following at a safe distance. As the cart draws near, the people are astounded. It's the Ark of the Lord. Most of them would probably have never seen it before. And they certainly wouldn't expect to see it now. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the Ark, they rejoiced to, to see it. Verse 13. And this is a promising first response, isn't it? Because unlike the Philistines, the people of Beth Shemesh are, are filled with joy about the ark's presence. The cows stop in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, perhaps right in the midst of the harvesters. And at this point, there's surely nobody harvesting anymore. The Levites 
took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. This is some more good news. There were Levites on hand to properly handle the ark. In fact, we learn from Joshua 21 that Beth Shemesh had been given to the descendants of Aaron. So these Levites were probably of the house, were of the house of Aaron. As we learned last week, God had chosen the descendants of Aaron to minister before the Ark of the Lord. Of all people, surely they would know how to properly handle it. But then we see an ominous detail in verse 14. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. In Leviticus 1 verse 3 the Lord prescribed that a burnt offering should be a male. But these were milk cows. So we begin to get the sense that there's something wrong here. And then in verse 19, we're startled with some frightening judgment. He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. God had given strict commands about how the sons of Aaron were to handle the ark when the Israelites were traveling in the wilderness. In Numbers 4, verse 5 to 6, the Lord commands, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put in its poles. After this preparation, the Kohathites would then carry the ark. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Lastly, they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. The Israelites were to follow these commands from their holy God perfectly, lest they die. The men of Beth Shemesh, however, looked upon the ark of the Lord. This seems to be more than just lifting up their eyes and recognizing that it is the ark on the cart. The men of Beth Shemesh should have turned away until the ark was covered. But it seems that they drew near and looked on it almost as a tourist attraction. The Philistines had ignorantly mishandled the ark. And they were justly punished. But the men of Beth Shemesh, they had no excuse for this ignorance. They had received God's law and yet approached the ark of the Lord with carelessness. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? This is a loaded question, isn't it, brothers and sisters? The whole chapter builds towards this matter. The Philistines had asked their priests and diviners, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Now the men of Beth Shemesh ask, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They had descendants of Aaron among them, specially chosen to be consecrated to serve the Lord. But in their mourning, they seemed to forget God's law and his provision of the priesthood. And this is a strong lesson for us, congregation. The men of Beth Shemesh rejoiced to see the ark. 
but then failed to handle it according to God's law. They seemed full of religious zeal and emotion, and rightly so. But they did not worship the Lord as he required. Lord's Day 35 explains the second commandment in this way. We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded us in his word. In their excitement, the men of Beth Shemesh, they worshipped God in their own manner. They offered up cows instead of bulls, and they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And this example leads us to examine our own worship services. When we gather as congregation for worship, do we reflect on the holy presence of our holy God? Do we consider our own unholiness? We've been richly blessed in the biblical liturgy we've inherited, and we can be sure that our worship services do follow God's design. But do we truly examine our own hearts, humbly preparing ourselves to come before the Lord? The men of Beth Shemesh rejoiced, but then acted quickly and carelessly. Let us carefully humble ourselves and then rejoice. When we, when we come before the Lord in worship. So who is to stand before the Lord, this holy God? As we consider the holiness of our God, we're led to ask the same question, but we have a glorious answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ alone is able to stand before this holy God because he is perfectly holy. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that he in every way has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 1 says that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our Lord Jesus was tempted by the devil but held fast to the word of God. Our Lord Jesus has entirely fulfilled the law of God. And the beautiful news of this gospel is that by grace, the holiness of our Lord Jesus becomes our holiness. In Lord's Day 23, we confess, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. So because of Christ's holiness, we do not desperately say, to whom shall he go up away from us? But we say, in Christ, we stand before the Lord, our holy God. Brothers and sisters, are you prone to despair when you recognize the holiness of God? Are you prone to forget about the holiness of the Lord Jesus? Do not try to escape his presence and his holiness, but seek to escape your own unholiness by looking to him. Humble yourself in repentance before the Lord. Believe in his son and his holiness will clothe you in place of your sin. Indeed, his Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of his children. And that brings us to our third point, how to stand before 
his holy presence. For their part, the men of Beth Shemesh seem prone to despair. They follow the example of the Philistines, responding to the Lord's holiness by trying to escape his wrath. Verse 21, So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. For the first time in our text this morning, we hear of a town accepting the ark of the Lord to stay. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim even go to great lengths for this task. They come to Beth Shemesh to take up the ark themselves. And that's about 15 miles one-way trip. They seem to understand how to properly handle the ark. They bring it up the hill to the house of Abinadab and then consecrate his son, Eliezer. In order to serve before the ark, Eliezer was, of course, required to be of the house of Aaron. Aaron himself also had a son named Eliezer. And while this is no sure proof, it, it may suggest that Eliezer, the son of Abinadab, was of the same family line, and so was lawfully allowed to have charge of the ark of the Lord. We're not told of his credentials, but we also don't hear of the Lord bringing judgment upon this place, as he did upon those who had early, earlier mishandled the ark. A long time passes, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel laments after the Lord. The Lord had punished them at the hands of the Philistines and has struck 70 men of Beth Shemesh, so Israel is right to lament. But did you notice? Confronted by a holy God, Israel laments after him. And here's the spark of good news, good news that will grow as we consider the next chapter in a later sermon. Israel's lamentation, it's not directed inwards in a season of self-pity, but directed after the Lord. And in the meantime, Eliezer is consecrated to have charge of the ark. In our text, the ark has been the center of some tragic events. But now, in the charge of Eliezer, there seems to be a period of peace. And yet, if we look forward, we know that Kiriath-Jerim is, is not the final resting place of the ark, and Eliezer himself, he's not the final priest. Eliezer's consecration points us even more forward to someone perfectly consecrated to minister before the Lord, a great high priest who permanently holds his priesthood and whose perfect sacrifice brings not lament, but joy, great joy and peace for his people. The Lord Jesus, as perfectly holy, he stands before the holy presence of God. And at the beginning of the sermon, we, we considered the design of the ark. The Ten Commandments, they were placed inside, and on top of the ark was the mercy seat. The two cherubim had outstretched wings and faced the mercy seat, and the Lord was symbolized as being enthroned on the cherubim. 
Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the most holy place and would sprinkle the blood of a goat over and in front of the mercy seat. The Lord provided this sacrificial atonement to forgive his people their sins and to cover their unholiness. But this was temporary and pointed forward to a much greater sacrifice of atonement. In Romans 3 verse 25, we read of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And in the old Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word, propitiation, it's used for the mercy seat on the ark. So in this picture, Christ is the high priest who comes into the most holy place and sprinkles his own blood upon the mercy seat to stand between the sin of his people and their God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not a last-minute consecration like Eliezer, but he's the cornerstone of God's eternal plan. Through Christ's work, the high priest able to sympathize with our weakness, unholy sinners are made holy in the sight of their God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, who lives in the hearts of those who believe, we begin to live lives of holiness even now. Brothers and sisters, through faith in the blood of Christ, we can also stand before God's holy presence. The gulf between God's holiness and our, uh, our own unholiness has been perfectly bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no room for thoughts of our own works, of our own righteousness. There is no room for boasting except in our Lord Jesus and in his righteousness. We can do nothing but respond in reverence and awe and serve our holy God with fear and trembling. Congregation, our text this morning confronts us with God's holiness. Our text challenges the concept of holiness that our culture, musicians, and even other Christians present to us. But there is no room for softening God's holiness. Our God commands, be holy for I am holy. But with this command, he provides a way to stand before him. In Christ, we can stand before our holy God and by his Holy Spirit, we can begin in this life to live according to all the commands of God. Let us live with our eyes lifted up, looking to a future when we shall be perfected, when the sin and the weakness that clings so closely to us now will be banished, when we shall dwell forever in the presence of God of our holy God. Amen. Let's respond to God's holy word now with joy and thanksgiving by singing from hymn 28, the verses 1, 2, 4, and 7. <clears throat> 